Thanks for listening to the Roman Circus Podcast, a weekly dive into death-defying discussions of Catholic culture, tradition, and history. I'm Matt Baker, and with me, as always, is just plain old Zach Mabry. Zach, how are you doing today? Well, same as always. Just just plain old Zach Mabry. Tweet us at Roman Circus Pod. I'm at Hey, it's Matt Baker. Zach is at Zach Mabry, Z-A-C Mabry. Email us, podcast at romancircusblog.com. Find us on iTunes where you can rate and review us if you want. We had a few more reviews, which were good. Uh, we had one that enjoyed our banter but said our audio presentation wasn't as great, so we will work on that. You can find us on Podbean, Stitcher, and Google Play. Also, we are at Patron now, patron.com, Patreon. That's what it is, patreon.com slash Pod. So if you want to give a little money to the podcast to keep this thing going, feel free. And also, I I haven't talked about our unofficial sponsor recently, Zach. Maury C. Moose, the children's book series that is storming the nation. Yes, we should love it. Be. Uh, my brother Adam has written a series of kids' books entitled Maury C. Moose and All His Hijinks. Check him out on Amazon. He he just got married the past few months, so uh, if you want to support a, a young married couple, that's how you can do it. There's there's my pitch, Zach. That's all the business to get out of the way early. I think that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Okay, so we have some news. Uh, some is... You know, it's it's not it's not pleasant news, but we decided to talk about it. Do you want to talk about Australia or Walmart first? Um, let's talk about Walmart. Okay. So, uh, what we learned is that Walmart is changing its uh, employment practices to effectively eliminate the greeter position. Mm-hmm. It's it's I would say one of the more famous positions in all of retail. Right. And they're replacing it with what they're calling a host. But uh-huh. to be a host, you have to be able to lift 25 pounds, clean up spills, collect carts, and stand for long periods of time, among right. other things. Um, whereas the greeter position had historically been um, a position filled many times by people with disabilities. Right. Or or older folks, retirees, too. Right. Sometimes. Um, yeah. And so in the in the... About a thousand of their U.S. stores are going to be affected by this, and disproportionately, it's impacting people with disabilities. And so, in a lot of ways, it's a sad change. Sure. Um, what now? I mean, just, what did they did they give a reasoning behind this? As far as did they did they what did they want to make Walmart seem more upscale? Like that they have a a personal valet? Like are they? Everybody has their own Mr. Bates. Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I'm assuming it's like a cost-cutting measure, and obviously that's always been Walmart, um, their focus. And so if you have, you know, a role with expanded responsibilities, then you can, in theory, have fewer people uh, working. And so they're calling this, like, customer hosts is the new new thing. And I guess it would make it a little bit more upscale, um, if they could do all of these services other than simply greet you. Okay. Well, I get, yeah. So I guess the, 
if I put on my evil corporation hat, the idea is that if you have Matt the greeter and you have Zach the do every like the the lifter and mover, just eliminate Matt and make Zach greet also, in theory. I guess. Um, because if they're if they're eliminating the greeter, but then they're hiring another position, they're not necessarily saving money, right? They're just eliminating one position and opening opening another position. Right. I mean, that's basically uh, that's basically what's happening. And like one of the people, the NPR quotes name is Caitlin, and she basically says, you know, they told her that. Um, the job was changing to a new code and she'd have to be able to stand and lift 25 pounds. And when she asked for, you know, suggestions on what to do, the manager didn't know what to, uh, what to tell them. And the thing about changing the job description and the expected functions is it is kind of a workaround of the Americans with disabilities act, which is supposed to protect people with disabilities from losing their job. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's tricky because I mean, yeah, I guess if I, you know, I went to school for, and I went to business school. I, I can understand the numbers here that, you know, when you're Walmart and you're competing against Amazon, cost is one of your biggest um, advantages right. and one of your best places to, you know, one thing you can do is cut costs. But then, you know, at the same time, businesses are made up of humans. And sure. as a customer, you know, I don't know what negligible savings it's going to give me for Walmart to cut this position. Um, but I, you know, I, I've always appreciated the, the greeters that are there. Yeah. You know, and, and I've appreciated and this is, it's a job that everybody can do. And so sometimes like, how often do you see, you don't even see old people that much anymore. Right. Yeah. It, it's one of those things where the idea behind some jobs is, is like if one thing is eliminated, well, you can just move on and find another job. But this is kind of a specific job for a, certain group of people that might not be able to go out and find another job, you know? Right. So that's, when they've that's offered where it kind of comes in. I guess they put out a press release basically saying they're going to work with their employees with disabilities who are in these positions that are changing. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, grandfathering in existing employees is not the same as continuing to offer employment for people with disabilities. Um Yes, it's oh, good to take care saying. of the people you already have, but you, it, that isn't that doesn't that's not really a true offset for what they're doing. Okay, so you're basically they're just they're walling off uh, the potential to hire people with disabilities in the future. I mean, basically, it's for yeah. people who have disabilities that affect you know this list of things. Like, there's no longer a position that doesn't require you know lifting 25 pounds and cleaning mm-hmm. up spills and stuff. Um, I mean, again, I, I get that Walmart, they have a fiduciary duty to their shareholders, but it, it just kind of points to some of the problems with our system because, you know, that was an, you know, people view that as meaningful work and, and people appreciate the greeters. Um, and so, it, you know, if capitalism is going to be a workable model, it, it can't exclude everybody um, who, you know, isn't physically able to do you know a bunch of demanding tasks well yeah and also the i mean the idea of i understand the idea of having a responsibility to your shareholders but the greeter position seems like it's 
pretty low impact on what happens with with their stock right like if they were if they were charging twenty dollars for a carton of mouthwash when really they should only be charging five and more people would buy five then they probably have that responsibility but it as far as just eliminating the greeter position and potentially filling it with another position i don't see how that impacts the bottom line all that much i don't know right no, I mean it, it. It, you know, it's it's one of the problems with our system. I would say, and it, it's why you don't hear me running out making these hard capitalist arguments. Is that, the, you know, the more technology comes into play, the more you can cut corners with this kind of stuff, and sure, you know, the more it becomes difficult to say, well, where where do people work if they're not, um, you know, super tech savvy, uh, information economy jobs or physically able, um. Where do they go? Learn to code, Zach. Learn to code. I know. And it's funny because, like, computers are coding for them. Like, coding is not – I mean, that's the that's the joke, right? But, like, right. even that isn't a viable long-term yeah. situation. And so um, – Yeah, I mean, well, there's a – I think there's yeah. a there's a difference between this greeter situation and then if I, if I own a business – if, like – it's like different, like owning a travel agency. Like those things kind of fall by the wayside, and maybe you have to like pivot to fully online, right, to keep up. But so I think that that scenario where is is different than just eliminating a greeter position. You know, like it. It just see. I don't. I don't get the. I, if they're trying to move on, it's like an interesting way to move on, especially because it's like I said, it's an I- iconic position. You almost like should take pride in being known for having these having these greeters like that is a, that's a, a redeem when there's not a lot of redeeming things in the in the public eye about Walmart at large the greeter position is right i mean i feel i feel less guilty about buying products that were probably built by you know slaves overseas knowing that a little bit of my money is going to provide gainful employment for the greeter this is a yeah this is just one more this is one more step in the plot by Lord Bezos to snuff out all his competition. True. He probably he probably planted those seeds. Yeah, well and like Amazon's had their share of controversy with how it works what it's like to work in their warehouses. Oh yeah. Um so clearly this uh being able to have everything at a cheap price wherever you want it, through Amazon or Walmart, etc., there's a real human cost to people who, you know, are, are further down the chain and don't have as many options available to them as maybe we do. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's something we have to reckon with. Yeah, we do. As, the, uh, the great as our friend, Zach. as, as friend of the show, Tucker Carlson said, we, uh, we don't exist to, for the benefit of shareholders. Or what was his quote? Uh, I think we don't exist for the benefit of machines. Machines. Okay. That was it. Yeah. Yeah, when he was debating Ben uh, Shapiro. Yeah, our, 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 both our both our pals, both our both friends of the show. <laughs> okay, uh, let's talk I mean, a little never, bit. About... They've never complained once about anything we've done on the show. That's true. They've hardly actually even acknowledged that we exist. So, uh, mm. which is what good friends do. Uh, Australia. Let's talk about Cardinal Pell just a little bit. I don't know a ton about what's going on so i'm not going to make any like crazy wild-eyed 
accusations or anything. Uh, I'll save that for later in the show. But uh, totally, yeah. So he he got charged with a couple counts of um, was it a, abuse? Yeah, they're saying he abused like I think two altar boys or something along right. those lines. The interesting thing to me that stuck out was the like with all the you know the idea of all the wanting to get these guys and wanting to wanting to make sure they're held to you know the justice is brought down there is kind of a backlash going on about how the trial was conducted and about some of the evidence and I thought that was kind of interesting it you know it especially how it, how things went down with you know McCarrick over here it just kind of seems a little I don't know why don't you fill me in fill me in on what's going on well that's the issue that you know I've been looking at is that you've seen a lot of people and I, I bet if you went back through our archives at one point we were one of them or two of them um, who <laughs> we, we're, we're just one that's right who were calling for you know okay we want to see the attorney general's you know, subpoena the diocese and open investigations and, you know, convene grand juries for all this stuff. Um, and it's like when we were saying that, when I was saying that kind of stuff, I was, for whatever reason, imagining that, you know, these these functions are neutral um, processes that are carried out without bias, et cetera, et cetera. And mm-hmm. a good reminder that that's not the case. Actually, the first clue to me, and when I changed my position was after the district attorney of Houston raided the diocese of Houston and took all their files. Right. Um, I mean, I, I know people who worked for the diocese in Dallas and I've through that, I, I was able to ask some questions and, um, you know, was told that these poor diocesan employees were just, you know, giving them whatever they wanted, but they were being, you know, treated like it was a raid. And then the district attorney holds a big press conference outside the diocesan office, basically saying, We've we've captured the secret archives of these Catholics, you know, blah blah blah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, come to find out, he's he's holding an elected position and he's basically, you know, holding a campaign commercial to do this kind of stuff. Sure. And that's when it started to dawn on me that, okay, I know that there's problems in the church, but to think that the state is a neutral actor and that there's not motivations that an attorney general or a district attorney or a special prosecutor would have is I mean, that's just lunatic. And the next example here is Cardinal Pell, because there are a lot of people that are saying that this was basically he's the fall man for sort of an anti-Catholic, um, you know, sentiment in Australia, and that the facts of his individual case are not being truly looked at, and he's just kind of getting this uh, thrown at him as a punishment. And I don't know if that's true or not, obviously. I'm not on the jury. I haven't even looked too closely into the details of the case, but it seems like people are hoping that maybe the Vatican can step in or Pope Francis can save this guy. But, you know, they've been arguing against that for months at least, if not longer. And so this is where it's important to realize that, you know, when God set up the Catholic Church, he willed that it would be governed by Peter, the Bishop of Rome. And so when we when we adopt a stance that the Church should be governed outside of, of the authority that God set up, that the Church be ruled by Peter— we're inviting groups, you know, to do things differently than God intended. At least that's my stance here. And I'm still working some of this out and reading more about it. Sure. But I would say, you know, Cardinal Pell would be a good example to look at for if we, 
if you know a, a cautionary tale before inviting the state to get involved. I mean, look at the United States. You know, we the the Pennsylvania grand jury report came out, and you know, in a a lot of ways, maybe there will be good fruit from that. But you know, also look at what happened in Houston. When look, we have members of Congress calling the Knights of Columbus a terrorist organization. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, why would we think? Why would we think that these people would have our interest in mind? You know. Um, why would we think that it wouldn't be the same thing that, you know, if you're in a diocese where your bishop is maybe more progressive and that lines up with your governor, that they're going to go light on you. And then, you know, if it's the opposite and you're in a progressive state, but your bishop, you know, is a traditionalist, or, I mean, if you can imagine, or at least conservative or neoconservative, um, Mm -hmm. that he's not going to get, you know, a much different treatment than if he was progressive and, um, you know, liberal and whatnot. I mean, it, it, this is where I don't think we should be putting confidence in the state and the civil authorities to handle these matters. And we should be looking to the Pope to do something, looking to Rome and praying that, you know, God will, you know, our Lord has managed to govern the church through his vicar in good times and bad for 2000 years. And there's no reason to think that that has somehow stopped being the model that he prefers. Right. Yeah. So not to get on a soapbox about the Pell thing or to dismiss the individual cases. I mean, we should be praying for him um, and, you know, hoping for the best for him. And I mean, I hope he didn't do these terrible things that he's accused of. And um, I mean, it sounds like it just wouldn't have been the, the way the story doesn't sound plausible. Like it happened in the sacristy after mass. And there's usually like 50 people. And I mean, that that's not like a private place, you know. Right. Well, I think they the said he was still in his vestments. It's like all that stuff. Yeah, gets there was a lot of that. other people really fast. Yeah, it. I mean, it stuff very well could have happened. It might not have happened in that context, and maybe you know your like memories get kind of combined with some things. But it is a pretty traumatic event. So I would think that he would remember exactly what happened, right? You know, even even though the years have gone by, if it's pretty traumatic, you would remember. So it. I don't know. It's yeah. tough. Is it? it but yeah, it did I mean, my seem... word of caution to people. Well, go ahead. I just said it just seemed it. The logistics didn't seem to add up. But also, I mean, you know, none of us were there, and uh, I'm not. I'm not going to make a habit of wildly defending people who have been accused of bad things, just in case, right? And instead, we'll just want the truth to win out, even if it's an unfortunate truth. Right. And then, I mean, obviously it goes pointing out that Cardinal Pell is, is looked at as being fairly conservative. Um, and a lot of the people that are sympathetic are also themselves conservative. But what I would say to people who are conservative or traditional, which I would consider myself one of them, is that it's a fantasy to think that the state's not going to come down harder on our side, who, you know, our positions aren't in favor right now and haven't been for some time. Why would we think that the state wouldn't take that into consideration? I mean, you know, they they hauled that. That I mean, well, you know, we've had the two the tale of the two desserts. We have the cake maker who won't bake the cake, you know, hauled into the Supreme Court for holding views that you know his customers didn't like, and then we've got this pastry chef that works for Donald Trump that they want her fired, not being able to make cakes because mm-hmm. uh, she believes in QAnon and stuff. QAnon, so I mean, yeah, there's not a neutral. 
actor in all this. Like the, everybody that's in, involved in civil government has their own agenda, their own career goal. I mean, everybody mm-hmm. everywhere. Like that's just how it works. Um, right. They have the next election to think about. They have the next appointment to think about. They have, you know, this or that. They're, you know, they. I mean, so to think that the state is somehow our ally in purifying the church, I think, is wishful thinking and and reckless. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, they're they're going to do what they're going to do, and it might not. Usually, I don't know. It doesn't seem like it's going to fall in line with what the church wants. So, yeah, that's why the position right. we've al- we've always talked about is uh, we first and foremost want Pope Francis to be a strong leader on these things and really take control. So that's, you know, we don't want him to cower in the corner and we don't want him to resign and we don't want any of that. We want him to be Pope and be a good one and go down in history as a great one. So, Right. And, you know, God has has figured out how to govern the church through popes with, with any number of flaws for the last 2,000 years. Um, I trust that he, he can handle the current situation. That's right. Okay, so... Off those two lovely news stories that really have the people pumped up right now, I'm sure. Let's let's transition into something lighter and, you know, more nice, more nicer. It is, we decided we're going to do Catholic firsts in America on this show today. Uh, four things. We're going to go through one at a time and talk about, you know, the first, the first, Catholic things of this nature in the United States of America. So if you are a listener who does not live in America, I hope you still find these entertaining and interesting. And uh, yeah, maybe we'll, maybe we'll get to your country one of these days. America uh, is the only country, Matt. Oh, yes. I, I'm sorry. America is the only country and everything else is uh, places that one day we can take over and build up democracy nation building zach all right you you want to go first sure so the first diocese in dallas or sorry hello in america (laughs) i live in dallas yeah um the first diocese well also we should talk about um i guess just to find our terms here when we're talking about america in this case we're referring to the basically the portion of the map settled by the British that that then defected in the Revolutionary War. So we're not talking about Canada settled by the French and the British and that separate. And we're also not talking about Mexico, which was settled by Spanish Catholics or Portugal settled by or sorry or Brazil settled by Portuguese Catholics. We're talking about. Um, when we say America, the portion settled by the Brits that then, and the Dutch, of course, that then broke away uh, and became the United States of America. Correct. So because England had already broken away from the Catholic Church, America, in the terms we're using, has always been overwhelmingly Protestant. Mm-hmm. I guess until now, their numbers are, are pretty bad these days, but from the beginning is heavily Protestant. That's one of the reasons that the towns are laid out in such horrible fashions where there's not anywhere to go <laughs> um, because that's, it's, that's efficient and that jives with the Protestant work ethic. Whereas Catholic towns are usually built with, you know, a piazza in the middle and, you know, public spaces. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard someone refer to that as Eucharistic, and I can't decide if that's too cheesy. Okay. Um, but anyway, so the first diocese set up was the Diocese of Baltimore. Right. Which is helpful. Um, well, a helpful tip for remembering that is the, you know, the, the greatest catechism produced in America is called the Baltimore Catechism. And that because it came from the Council of Baltimore, or what well, was commissioned at the Council of Baltimore, and Baltimore being the premier see of America, it kind of makes sense, right? Sure. Makes sense to me. Yeah. Baltimore is part of a colony called Maryland. Oh, or, yes. As we pronounce it, Maryland. Okay. Um, Maryland was kind of the, it was the original sort of hiding spot for the Catholics who wanted to be in the New World um, because, you know, they were persecuted in England and they probably would have been persecuted in the rest, or they were also persecuted anywhere else they went. Um, so it was formed under Lord Leonard Calvert, formed the first uh, Catholic colony, um, but then unfortunately... Uh, the Catholics were nice, as Catholics tend to be. Sure. And they gave asylum to Puritans, mm-hmm. who then uh, rebelled and seized the government, and the Catholics were excluded from administration of the province and restrained in the exercise of their faith. Amazing. Um, but Lord Baltimore eventually regained control, and, you know, years later, and then religious liberty for Catholics was restored. Uh, for a few more years, but then there's kind of this back and forth. So eventually, England cracks down. The Anglican Church becomes established in Maryland. Every colonist is taxed for its support. Um, then, you know, they became more lenient to non-Anglicans as long as they weren't Catholic. Then they became more aggressive about not letting priests perform their duties. Then, you know, Queen Anne gets involved and loosens up the rules and lets the clergy continue to perform their duties so you know the catholic question if you will is is this back and forth of are catholics allowed to have any kind of freedom what freedom will they have what will they want and then there is sort of the question of the anglican church and you know what role it's going to have in the colonies okay um shortly before independence but i guess around the time that the colonies were also the rest of the colonies were getting taxed and were complaining about it there was kind of an attempt to wipe out Catholicism by uh, confiscating all the property of the clergy. I point this out because confiscating property of the clergy, do you know what a shorter term for that would be? Uh, no. What would that be? It would just be a tax. I mean, and that's one of the reasons oh, that you know, okay. the Catholic Church is not subject to taxation from the United States government because mm-hmm. the United States government can't lay claim on the properties of the church. The church was founded by Jesus. Um, so at this time, there couldn't have been a ton of clergy at this point, right? There probably was only a a handful, not maybe not even a dozen. It seems like that I don't actually know. Mm -hmm. I don't actually know the numbers. Um, but a lot of people have to think that it was a huge shock to Christendom when the new world was discovered. And there was a sort of missionary zeal to bring the gospel over. That gets kind of lost because some of the, when the Protestants came, they weren't really necessarily interested in spreading Christianity. The Protestants were kind of interested in doing their own thing or, or building their own version of like a utopia. Well, and so with exceptions, I mean, whoever, whoever gets there with their religion first kind of controls the land too, I would imagine. So I imagine on some level there's a fight for, there's a fight to spread the word of their faith 
for the purposes of controlling the land that they will soon own. Right. And, I mean, you know, there's obviously very different um, – there's a lot of differences within Protestantism, so I'm not meaning to paint with a broad brush. But, I mean, the you know, the Puritans weren't necessarily trying to spread Puritanism as much as they were just trying to be Puritans um, I, and control <laughs> everything. And yeah. um, so that's just some of the groundwork for, you know, Catholicism kind of having its sort of cultural center in Maryland. And so after independence, the first diocese of the United States becomes the Archdiocese of Baltimore. And the first bishop is Bishop John Carroll. Right. And his okay. brother, Daniel Carroll, was the leading Catholic among the founding fathers. Really? Mm-hmm. That's pretty fun. Totally. I mean, well, he's one of the reasons that, that there's no religion test allowed for holding national office. Um, and Daniel the, Carroll. Yes, and that the states abolished um, legal restrictions on Catholics. So, I mean, the United States continues to be a very anti-Catholic place, and and I don't mean anti-Catholic like Catholics are, you know, going to have bricks thrown through their windows or, you know, not be mm. able to apply for jobs. I mean, the the principles that underlie this country are in conflict with the principles of Catholicism and they always have been. And so mm-hmm. that's what I mean by anti-Catholic. I don't mean petty stuff and getting our feelings hurt because, you know, somebody made fun of us for not eating meat on Fridays. I mean, you know, very important principles of Catholicism don't really jive with the Masonic principles that, you know, underlie political movements of the 18th and 19th centuries. Yeah. Yep. The Masons. If you want to hear more about the Masons, listen to last week's podcast of Clerically Speaking. They, yes. They, or just, you know, have 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 me drink one beer and then <laughs> you'll pretty much hear as much as you can tolerate about the Masons. <laughs> yes, we should do that. That'll OK. That'll be a Patreon. Yes. Well, yeah. Zach, like Zach uh, drinks and talks about Masons. That like drunk history that show on Comedy Central, but it's just you talking about the Masons. Yes, uh, who uh, Tim Ferriss does like every year. He does a podcast where um, his his fans send in their phone numbers, and he randomly picks some. But during this like three hour podcast, he's just drinking straight whiskey. And so, obviously, I don't recommend drinking to the point of intoxication. Of course, but uh, it's a pretty funny episode and. He's such a weird person that he's got these like wildly eccentric fans. So, um, I enjoyed that. We'll we'll do that. We'll like uh, I mean you won't, but I'll I'll uh, I'll drink sherry and and we'll call up our our patrons. I'll I'll drink Mountain Dew and get all jacked up. All jacked uh, up on Mountain Dew. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so uh, that leads me to the first Catholic university, Zach. The first Catholic university is located in the swamp, and it is Georgetown, Georgetown University, the oldest Catholic and Jesuit-affiliated institution in the United States, established in 1789 by John Carroll, who we said was first bishop and first archbishop in the U.S. It Here's some stats for you. I'm going to read some cold, hard stats about what Georgetown is right now. Home to almost 18,000 undergrad and postgrad students every year. It sits on a 104-acre plot of land 
in part of Washington, D.C., coincidentally called Georgetown. What are the odds? Their current president is John D. Giola. He is the longest-serving president and the first lay president of the school. So, after the American Revolution, there was a call for a permanent Catholic institution in the United States. Until then, Catholic education had basically been done in secret by the Jesuits. Secret education. So, a $100 billman and noted lightning enthusiast Benjamin Franklin recommended to Pope Pius VI that John Carroll be named the first head of the Catholic Church in the United States. Pope Pius said, it certainly is all about the Benjamins' ideas, baby. You like that, Zach? That's good. Okay. Okay, thank you. Uh, This was big because at that time, uh, there was also papal suppression of the Jesuits in place. You remember this? Oh, yes. Yes, the world never recovered from this. (laughs) Yeah. In we'll 17... have to do that as another episode. Right. So I'll give I'll, I'll give a quick background. In 1773, Pope Clement XIV issued a papal decree saying that the Company of Jesus, known as the Jesuits, can no longer produce the abundant fruits, and after mature deliberation, we do, out of our certain knowledge and the fullness of our apostolic powers, suppress and abolish that said company. We deprive it of all activity whatsoever. So they came down with the hammer. Uh, In 1814, Pope Pius VII issued an order restoring the Jesuits in the Catholic countries of Europe. So yeah, well, that, that would be a good episode. Anyway, on with the Georgetown. The purchase of property for Georgetown happened on January 23rd, 1789. Future Congressman William Gaston enrolled as the first student on November 22, 1791, and class was in session on January 2, 1792. President James Madison signed Georgetown's Congressional Charter into law on March 1, 1815, which created the first federal university charter and allowed it to begin handing out degrees, the first of which was given in 1817. Uh, one of the things that happened in its history, it fought through financial strain during the beginning of the university, which is something you would obviously expect. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it would reach out to continue mainly via private funds and whatever profit they gained off the land that had been donated. Uh, In 1838, a big source of revenue came when six plantations in Maryland sold 272 slaves to a Louisiana plantation uh, and they gave a bunch of money to Georgetown and that kind of actually ended slavery in that area not like in a positive ended slavery in America way because they still sold the slaves obviously but like in that area there's kind of slavery kind of just slowed down after that um The Civil War impacted enrollment, and in 1869, only seven students graduated. But never fear, Zach. I know you were worried about the history of Georgetown. One of the most important figures in Georgetown's history arrived in in 1873, and his name was Patrick Francis Healy. 
He was born in Georgia of mixed race by ancestry and therefore was considered a slave by law, even though he mainly identified as Irish Catholic. Um, he was the first head of a predominantly white American university to acknowledge African descent. He and he basically what he did is he came in and he completely reformed the curriculum strengthened the medical and law programs and created the alumni association and then and uh basically they named a hall after him they constructed a new building and named it healy hall in his honor georgetown became fully co-ed in 1969 when it welcomed its first female students into the colleges of arts and sciences uh yeah they uh they're known as one of the most selective schools to get into. And personally, I have had two friends graduate from Georgetown, which means, Zach, that I am very smart by association. It's something that I think I should get more credit for. Uh, yeah, if you like sports, they got a, they had a famous men's basketball program. And they've had a lot of famous alumni, including President Clinton, Justice Scalia, Bradley Cooper, John Mulaney, and Jim Gaffigan. And other heads of state. So that's Georgetown. John Mulaney, I always feel like him and I kind of look alike. Yeah, I may. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, yes and no. the The idea of you, the idea of your hair and your your skin. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I we, could, we both have hair and we we both have skin. Yes, that is very. Those are two common traits that you and John Mulaney have. Uh, yeah, that's Georgetown. It it uh, um, they d- decided they needed a Catholic university, and Benjamin Franklin helped make that happen. Amazing. Well, mm-hmm. you know, I guess there's there's hope for Georgetown after all, right? Yeah, let's hope so. They it they they've obviously had a an interesting history because they do. There's a lot of the, about their university that stays true to the catholic teachings but also they kind of meander and wander off uh as they go which is kind of brings back your point of they were they were run primarily by the jesuits for so long and then they let they let a a lay person come in and take over and things just kind of you know instead of walking a straight line they kind of make s's around that line also every now and then hitting with cat hitting and continuing with catholic teaching right well, and that all, all of that gets ushered in with liberalism and, you know, all of these flawed ideas of the Enlightenment. You know, a few hundred years of mm-hmm. of that will will rot anybody's brain. <laughs> yeah, well, what's up next? Next, we've got the first Catholic hospital. Oh, Catholic hospital. Yeah. So um, the funny thing is, is that Catholic hospital is, is a little bit duplicative because there weren't hospitals until Catholics invented them. Um, there was, you know, medical care for the very wealthy or the, or royalty, but even it was also, you know, primarily just superstitions. Sure. Um, the idea like of leeches, having... Zach, like they strap a bunch of leeches to you and, and drain the bad blood. I mean, it, that seems like a bad idea, but at the same time, I'm like, I can, it's creative, right? Yeah, I've never, I've actually never, like, I, it's, it is really weird, but it, if medical care is so primitive at that point and you're learning, why wouldn't you try leeches for to suck out the bad blood? 
Yeah, I mean, if you look at, like, the therapeutic techniques that came after Freud, um, leeching doesn't even seem that crazy compared to some of the stuff that they did. So, um, you know, you don't want to get too... The 20th century was, like, just profoundly ignorant time of human existence. And so um, we can't make too much fun of the leeches because at least, I mean, you know, if there's, there's disease in your blood, you know, put some leeches on it. By the 19th I mean, century, what... it would be like, you've got... Uh, You've got ghosts in your blood, so <laughs> probably do cocaine about it. Um, that's a that's one of my all time favorite tweets. Yeah, I forget who tweeted it. I also uh, what's 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 weirder, uh, leeches sucking your blood or not vaccinating your children, Zach? We're not. We're not even going near that topic. <laughs> Uh, I wanted to spice it up. Anyway, okay, tell us about the hospital. What happened? Um, okay, so basically to explain that throughout the world, um, the rise of hospitals came. Uh, it was a, a Catholic development. And then a lot of times as Muslims began invading Christian lands, they would have to build more hospitals because there were more people being injured. And Sure. Um, so that sort of spurred on the growth of hospitals, which was very neat. And so today... I figured we'd work backwards on this. Um, the The church provides over a fourth of all, or I guess manages over a fourth of all the world's healthcare facilities. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of them are actually in developing countries. And so that's kind of cool. It is cool. It is. So in America, the first hospital um, is credited as being Charity Hospital in New Orleans, which at the time was called, when it was founded, it was Hospital of St. John. In the, in, uh, in the French Quarter, mm-hmm. it was actually built to um, be for the indigenous population in New Orleans. And so this kind of goes along with the trend of, of Catholics who settled in the New World often, um, you know, getting involved in caring for the people who were there, you know, whereas, you know, up north where the Puritans settled, it was kind of like, okay, we're here, get out. And... Um, <laughs> Now, again, I'm not saying that it was all um, gravy in French French America by any means, and sure. you know, there's a lot to say on that topic, but there was a different mindset for the Catholics who came to America than the Protestants um, for various reasons. And so, yeah, this hospital's built. The sad thing is that it's no longer in operation. Oh, it isn't? What is it now? Is the building still there, or is it? Uh, I believe the building's still there, and it's just just sitting there. So it was damaged and closed with Hurricane Katrina. Oh, wow. Which so just proves recent. that. Yeah. It proves Hurricane Katrina is a Masonic plot. Okay, yeah, I think that we I think we can all agree on that. It had 2680 beds, which is massive. 20, bigger than wow, Downton yeah. Abbey. Yeah. Um and it was also founded before uh the United States. It was um uh, 19, 1736. So it was before independence. Okay. Wow. And it, it stood for... How long would that be? It closed in 2005. 260, 270 years before it was... And it, it closed because of a wild hurricane? Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, Masonic plot. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So it is... Um, that's the oldest Catholic hospital, and I'm trying to 
look at my notes and see what else was interesting about it. Um, oh, it was changed from St. John to uh, San Carlos Hospital mm-hmm. in honor of the uh, King Charles III of Spain after yeah. New Orleans captured Spain in the mid-18th century. Um, so even though the Catholics were, you know, maybe there was some infighting and they were they were taking land for each other, they did keep the hospital going, even though they, they renamed it with their guy. Okay. Yeah. Yep. That's, um, that's so. Cool. Yeah. The uh, it, the um, it was built with a grant from uh, Jean Louis. He was a French sailor and shipbuilder who died in New Orleans, and uh, it was actually in his will. So he was dead before this happened, but it was in uh, his will and testament to give his estate and like the land and uh, the money to build the hospital. And so that's kind of the neat thing about you know Catholics throughout time, you know. Scripture and the church teaches that money can be such a, a danger if we mm-hmm. get too much of it and we become too attached to it. Right. And so a great thing to do if you find yourself with a lot of money and you want to still, you know, go to heaven and not be at risk of, of getting too attached one day is, you know, build a hospital, build a chapel, build a monastery, build a school, you know, do something Catholic with your money. I, I uh, agree with speaking that. Speaking of... Um, we actually have a Patreon, and you could go to <laughs> patreon.com slash Roman Circus Pod, and you could contribute some of your funds to us, just like Zach, Jean-Louis uh, built the first Catholic hospital. Zach, they all stopped listening, right as, right, as, right as speaking of, we have a Patreon. I know, it's true. It's There's like right. an I'll app tr- that cuts, the, it cuts all that audio out. Yeah. Yeah, it just, it just cuts straight to... Uh, well, thanks for listening this week, and uh, we'll see you next week. And then it uh, burns like in Mission Impossible, self-destructs. All right, I'll uh, I'll win him back here, Zach. And and we we're not we won't do the normal Saint of the Week where we talk about a saint who is happening of this week. We are going to do two saints of the week, and they are the first Catholic saints in America. It's very exciting. I have two for you, Zach. Let's hear them. The first naturalized citizen of the United States to be canonized by Rome is St. Francis Xavier Cabrini. Huh. Here's some of her background. It's a she saint. It's a girl saint. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Francis. Nice. So- Francis with a, an E-S on the end. Gotcha. Because it's like St. Francis and then Xavier, and that's the same. But then Cabrini, that's another. That's, that's not the same as Francis Xavier or, of course, Francis. Right. I will I, I will. I will. touch on that here. Oh. Spoiler alert. Touch away. Born, born on July 15th, 1850 in Austria, the youngest of 13 children. Unfortunately, only four of the children lived past adolescence. Uh she her parents died in 1870 and shortly after she applied for admission to the daughters of the sacred heart at arluno but they deemed her too frail for their way of life uh, francis was born two months premature and was very delicate throughout her entire life which is pretty impressive if if she was born two months premature and she was very delicate she and she survived when nine of her siblings didn't that's something was going on there and uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Apparently, okay. So instead of entering the daughters of the Sacred Heart, she became a headmistress of an orphanage and taught there. Uh, 
She took religious vows in 1877, and that is when she added Xavier to her name in honor of St. Francis Xavier. In 1880, she founded the Missionary Sisters of the Sacred Heart of Jesus and was a superior general there until her death. The sister worked closely with orphanages and established seven homes, a free school, and a nursery in its, the first five years, and that is when she was noticed by Pope Leo XIII. In September of 1877, she went to the Pope and asked to establish a mission in China, but the Pope said, go to the United States instead so to help with the influx of a, Italian immigrants who had just immigrated there. She arrived in New York City on March 31, 1889. The Archbishop at that time was not necessarily helpful to her at first, but eventually found her housing with the Sisters of Charity. She founded an orphanage in West Park, New York, now known as the St. Cabrini House. Overall, she founded 67 institutions within the United States and in South America and Europe. And after her death, the Missionary Sisters fulfilled her goal of being missionaries to China. So, in 1909, she was naturalized as a United States citizen. And on December 22, 1917, at the age of 67, she died of dysentery in Chicago. In 1931, her body was exhumed as part of the canonization process. Her head was removed, as you do, and is preserved in the chapel of the Con Congregational Mother House in Rome. Her arm is at the National Shrine in Chicago, and the rest of her body is at the Shrine in New York. She was beatified on November 13, 1938, by Pope Pius XI, and canonized by Pope Pius XII on July 7, 1946. So the, the cool, one of the cool things is her beatification miracle involved restoring the sight and healing the disfigurements of a one-day-old child. Then that child would actually hmm. that child would go on to be present at her canonization and would later become a priest. How cool is that? Wow. When now um just wait one more no thing. Reason at all. Okay, go ahead. Oh wait, never mind. You go first. You know, for for no reason at all, did did she um did she first consult with the mother and the doctor before healing the one day old baby? Oh no, Zach, it just happened. Uh-oh. Well, you know, don't tell American politicians. Problematic, I know. I know. Uh, uh, all right. Back, back she, to you, Matt. <laughs> thank you. Pleasure to be here. When she was canonized, there were 120,000 people inside of Soldier Field, the football field where the Chicago Bears play, for a massive Thanksgiving for her canonization, which is pretty amazing. Her feast day is November 13th. She is the patron saint of immigrants and hospital administrators. It would be very cool in 2019 to have 120,000 Catholics show up at a place to commemorate a saint. Again, I hope that we see that soon. What do you think the Super Bowl is? Oh, that... <laughs> I don't know. I'm just kidding. That was, that was, I'm going to cut that joke. Just no, it's it's staying. Okay, the first natural, or nat natural, I mean native-born citizen of the United States is St. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Ann Seton, a.k.a. the namesake oh, right. of my high school in Chandler, Arizona, Zach. And, like, private well, school uh, 
curriculum, right? I she has she's basically all Seat over home study. Yeah, she's yeah, all she's over that. Stuff. I mean, not not all over the way that Saint Francis Xavier Cabrini. Her her body's everywhere. Yeah, apparently she's got arms. She got arms over here. It's like you put your left foot in. You, never mind. <laughs> all right, we got to hurry up. This podcast is falling apart. Born yep. on August twenty eighth, seventeen seventy four, in New York City. She is the second child of a socially prominent couple, and her ancestors were among the earliest European settlers in the New York area. At the age of 19, Elizabeth married a wealthy import trader named William, and they moved into a high-priced residence on Wall Street. They belonged to the Trinity Episcopal Church, and Elizabeth was a devout church service attendee. At the turn of the 19th century, there was a dispute between America and the French, which led to attacks on American shipping. Attacks, not attacks, A-T-T-A-C-K-S, attacks on American shipping. William Seton went bankrupt, bankrupt, and the Seton family lost their home. They had to stay with Elizabeth's father for a bit. And even worse, William Seton, who had been suffering from tuberculosis, through like the time they were married got much worse and he was sent to Italy to recover because the climate didn't we just talk last week about how everybody's dying of tuberculosis in history we it sounds like something we would have talked about I get the weeks confused yeah I mean it's like constantly everywhere you look in history people are dying of tuberculosis and oh that's right we talked yeah we never hear about it anymore also, when you said that um, her parents were, you said socially prominent couple, like for mm-hmm. every reason, my mind instantly flashed to Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump. <laughs> and then, but then it cut to uh, Kim and Kanye. So this is how I'm picturing that she's either the, she's either the, the daughter of Kim and Kanye or uh, Jared and Ivanka. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. We'll have to check with a priest if that's uh, grave, if that's grave error. Okay, so they were. He was sent to Italy to recover. Elizabeth and their eldest daughter went with them, and they were welcomed to Italy by being quarantined for a month. Which obviously would happen if you're going to a different country with tuberculosis. They're not just going to like welcome you into that country. So William died on December twenty seventh, eighteen o three, and thankfully, some of his Italian business partners helped Elizabeth through this time and, even more thankfully, introduced her to Catholicism. So when she returned to New York on March 14, 1805, she was received into the church at St. Peter's, the only Catholic church in New York City. And the next year, she was confirmed by Bishop John Carroll, the only Catholic bishop in America at that time. John Carroll is all over these, Zach. Yeah, guy stayed in busy. Or- he did. In order to support her family, Elizabeth started an academy for young ladies, but when word spread about her conversion, many people withdrew their daughters, looking to place them under the tutelage of a non-Catholic instead. Elizabeth was about to move to Canada, but she met a visiting priest from Baltimore who was looking to establish a religious school to meet the needs of the Catholic community. She accepted and moved to Maryland. In 1810, she established St. Joseph's Academy and Free School, dedicated to the education of Catholic girls. A little later that year, she established a religious community in Maryland, dedicated to the care of the children of the poor. 
This is the first congregation of religious sisters to be founded in the United States, and the school is the first free Catholic school in America. And it was initially called the Sisters of Charity of St. Joseph's, and she became known as Mother Seton. She spent the rest of her life developing new congregations, drawing off of her charm and culture from her previous married life in high society, and they always tried to pull her back in, but she rejected them, Zach, and stuck with the religious life. Beautiful. She, she died January 4th, 1821, at the age of 46, which shocked me because reading through all this, she seemed like she had done a lot uh, and probably died at the age of 70, but no, it was the age of 46, and her remains are entombed in the National Shrine of St. Elizabeth Ann Seton in Emmitsburg, Maryland. Uh, by 1830, the sisters were running orphanages as far west as New Orleans and established the first hospital west of the Mississippi in St. Louis. Today, six separate religious congregations trace their roots back to St. Elizabeth Ann Seton, and there are churches in over 40 states as well as Canada and Italy that bear her name. There were some nice quotes on the day she was beatified and on the day she was canonized. So she was beatified March 17th, 1963 by Pope John the 23rd. He said, and I quote, in a house that was very small, but with ample space for charity, she sowed a seed in America, which by divine grace get built into a large tree, grew into a large tree. On September 14th, 1945, she was canonized by Pope Paul VI, who said, Elizabeth Ann Seton is a saint. Saint Elizabeth Ann Seton is an American. All of us say this with special joy and with the intention of honoring the land and nation from which she sprang forth as the first flower in the calendar of the saints. Elizabeth Ann Seton was wholly American. Rejoice for our glorious daughter. Be proud of her and know how to preserve her fruitful heritage. Her feast day is January 4th, the 11th day of Christmastide. She's the patron saint of Catholic schools, Shreveport, Louisiana, the state of Maryland, seafarers, and widows. So there you go, Zach. That was that was a little long, I think but it, that uh, was justice done. Imagine going to Italy for to go to a hospital. <laughs> I know that that kind of was interesting to me that they had to do that, but it also had to do more with the climate. I think is what I read. Like oh, okay. that I was the, like, I mean, if you want to see what, if you want to see what Italian hospitals were like 200 years ago, uh, just visit Italy um, and, <laughs> and go to a hospital. Yeah. But, um, uh, just kidding. Sorry to all of our Italian listeners. Sorry, not sorry. Okay, that those are some of the American firsts. We the reason we did that is because we always had promised Catholic culture, tradition, and history on this show, and. I don't know how much like actual history we've done. So, you know, it's we been We make history every episode. That's true. It's been 14 months, so we figured we'd sneak in a somewhat history episode. So, in 14 sure. months we do from want to now. Do more. Yeah. We're going to do the in papal 14 states months. next. Papal states. Maybe. Yeah, let's do that. All right. Yes. Anything else before we sign off, Zach? Um no. Okay. Blunt, Nothing. straightforward. I like it. We will talk to you all next week. See ya.